Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Essential services, including frontline workers, carry a high stress load, resulting in more prevalent mental health conditions and an increased risk of suicide. So how have frontline workers been faring over a tumultuous few years and what can we do to help? Here to answer these questions is this week's podcast guest, Dr. Alex West, Senior Psychologist for Victoria Police and Clinical Lead in Wellbeing Services. She has a background in clinical, forensic and organisational psychology with her current role involving overseeing psychology and mental health within the organisation as well as the provision of psychological services. Alex was the internal lead of the Victoria Police Mental Health Review in 2016 and the clinical lead on the implementation of its recommendations. She was also the primary author of the first Victoria Police Mental Health and Wellbeing Strategy. Tune in this week as Alex joins me to reflect upon the events of 2020 and 2021 and the impacts it's had on frontline workers' mental health and what we can do to support the well-being of those who prioritise caring for the safety and well-being of others. Dr. Alex West, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. Nice to uh, be here. I just want to give our listeners a bit of a background about your journey and how you got into mental health. Sure. I, um, my interest started as a teenager, actually. Um, in a very very stereotypical manner, um, you know, watched some of the movies where psychologists were quite prominent in forensic psychology. Um, you know, so watching movies, I sort of had my interest peaked about what is this thing called psychology and particularly criminal psychology. Um, and that was enough of an interest to direct me into um, graduate study in university. So I um, so did my uh, bachelor and did my undergrad um, and... Um, and then my postgrad um, in psychology. Um, still had an interest in both practice and research. So um, I was lucky enough to have a really great mentor and supervisor who was really critical to my development uh, as a psychologist and decided to undertake a combined master's PhD so that I could um, engage in the practice of psychologist but still, um, I guess, develop the skills and the interest in the research side given that we're such an evidence-based industry. Uh, and be able to contribute to both. How did you enjoy that experience? Uh, I loved it. I love study. I, th- I think it, I think it took a while to um, for it to gel with me about sort of getting my head around it. But um, but I loved it, and um, I probably spent too many years studying um, because I just in- enjoyed uh, enjoyed the journey. And as I said, I you know I had a fantastic mentor and supervisor who I worked with, and who I worked with on research for a number of years. 
uh, and who um, essentially was like my professional father and grandfather who sort of inducted me into the field, um, helped me find my professional feet. Um, and, you know, he was very active in the industry. Um, so he's encouraged that in me as well in terms of participating in um, in the industry more broadly, whether that's through ethics committees, uh, you know, conferences, um, professional bodies, all of those sorts of things. So it's been a, a varied a varied journey so far. A question I just thought of, which may be a really bad question, but I want, something I want to ask you is, if you had to go back and study mental health, what about the degree would you like to see change or improve uh, or, or include? I think the way that we're trained, so when I went into my postgraduate years, I studied clinical psychology for my master's PhD. Uh, and we, when we get to postgraduate, we, um, we choose a stream of psychology. So, so you do have to make a decision about do I do clinical, do I do forensic, do I do organisational? Um, and I think uh, looking back on my own journey but reflecting on the years that I have spent supervising students and supervising staff in workplaces, I think the division into our streams um, comes at a cost. I think there's not enough crossover or recognition that a lot of the industries we work in are not a pure stream of psychology. Um, in my current work with Victoria Police, it's very much a blend of organisational psychology and clinical psychology okay. with aspects of forensic. So I don't think we're necessarily equipping um, junior psychologists very well to think outside of their dedicated discipline stream. Um, and I think that has a flow on for the workplaces they end up with uh, in terms of being able to serve those industries or organisations um, in the best that way that we can with the skill sets that we have. Um, yeah. So... After you completed your Masters, wh how did you... Where did you go? So I was... During my placements um, in clinical psych, I had, I had a lot of other interest areas. I, I thought I would have always angled to forensic psychology because the whole criminal psychology profiling was, you know, pretty sexy back then. And I thought, well, this is super interesting. Um, but I also recognised that I had a lot of other interest areas in psychology outside of forensic. So that's why I ended up going down the clinical path. Uh, and that was a, an intentional choice after much discussion with my supervisor. Uh, but what I did when I was in my clinical master's, I made sure to diversify my placements. So I did a forensic placement. I did um, pure clinical psychiatric placements. I did broad-based counselling. So I tried to expose myself to a range of environments. But... Um, based on my interest in forensic, it was the forensic placement that got me. Uh, so while I was doing my postgrad, I was lucky enough to go back and work for Corrections Victoria, um, which was where one of my placements was working for a specific unit um, that uh, really undertook the assessment and treatment of convicted sex offenders uh, in the state. So on both community and um, prison orders. Wow. So I went back there working uh, part-time while I was still studying. And then when I finished my degrees, uh, I was offered a job there full-time. Uh, so I went straight into the forensic field, um, conducting assessments and treatment of sex offenders. How was that experience? Fascinating. I loved it. The, the work is so interesting, um, you know, and, uh, and as a psychologist, it's, you know, it, it's challenging in the richest way possible, you know, it... It requires you to use all the skills that you've been trained in to think, to formulate, to reflect, to um, to apply, uh, you know, and translate research into application in terms of best evidence. 
it's a high risk and high visibility area. You know, there's a lot um, of scrutiny and risk attached to dealing in forensic um, settings. So, you know, so you do get a very uh, quick and I think effective education too around the importance of um, constant uh, vigilance of risk at all levels, mm-hmm. um, around ethical practice, around use of evidence, um, because we're essentially, uh, you know, responsible for trying to uh, treat and intervene um, in the types of crimes that have the most devastating and significant of of human impact. Um, so, you know, high reward uh, when you're actually able to engage um, people in treatment. Um, not the most popular of, uh, of dinner table conversations amongst yeah. friends. Um, you know, it's very contentious, you know, very cognizant of the fact that you may be interacting with people who have been uh, victims um, of those kinds of crimes yeah. and that it is very polarising um, and can provoke a whole range of attitudes. But I think fundamentally, if I didn't believe in the capacity for humans to change their behaviour, yeah. I wouldn't do the work. Yeah. Um, and... I think all of us that worked in that field take that responsibility very seriously, but um, but it is it's also incredibly rewarding and incredibly fascinating work and, and incredibly complex. Did uh, did that open your eyes up being in that role? We you... uh, absolutely um, in probably a range of ways. I think um, not only in terms of the obvious regarding um, uh, you know getting high visibility of these crimes, um, you know, the people that commit them, why they commit them, um, you know, the the difficulties of administering um, treatment in a mandated setting, in correctional settings, the challenges of that, um, the challenges of working in uh, in sort of government and bureaucratic settings where there are lots of competing uh, interests, you know, where there's uh, high visibility, where there's... um, a lot of community feeling about these kinds of things. So yeah. you certainly, I think as a psychologist, um, learn that it's not just about the therapy skills you develop. And this probably was one, my other criticism or or concern about our training is that I think our training models um, tend to focus us on developing treatment skills for the individual treatment setting rather than uh, broadening our perspective around you know the the fact that it's not always about the individual the individual and the treatment we do with them um, but also the environments in which they operate the systems in which we operate uh, and how we actually adapt and work within all of those things as well mm. yeah that'd be it'd be fascinating what what is your thoughts on the uh, on how we approach uh, the people in corrections institutions do you think that there needs to be a far better job done in rehabilitation, um, reintegrating back into society. Oh, look, I've been out of out of that game for twelve years now, so um, I'm probably um, not commenting on the contemporary approaches. Yeah. Um, I know that we, when I left, we had started to. Um, there was a, you know, some of the prisons that have been opened um, have had more of a therapeutic community mm-hmm. model, you know, with a focus on um, being able to provide skills and pathways um, out of offending lifestyles and out of offending behaviours. Um, but along with that, I you know, realise there's also been an increase 
um, in the appetite for monitoring uh, and control um, of people who have committed certain types of crimes. So, you know, there's in the last 12 years there's been lots of changes to legislation, uh, monitoring and um, and treatment yeah. programs that, that I'm no longer familiar with. So. Yeah. so from corrections then, where did you then move into? Uh, so I moved into Victoria Police uh, and actually not in my current role. Um, I was uh, conscious um, back then even of, you know, self-care and the risks to self-care, particularly working um, within a crime theme that can be quite emotionally invasive. So I had always said to myself, you know, after I do um, a few years full-time at this, I will, whether I think I'm ready or not, uh, I'll step out and do something different to give myself a, a chance to self-check where I am. Uh, and that opportunity presented itself. There was a, um, a project role with Victoria Police focusing on um, much more organisational psychology. It was around providing management coaching to middle managers, so senior sergeant oh. ranks across the organisation around health and wellbeing issues. Um, oh. So, so com- sort of a, a complete, um, not quite a complete 180, yeah. Um, but much more of a coaching, organisational focus, more broadly on wellbeing. Yes. Um, and how to support station managers around dealing with um, health and wellbeing issues in their people and in their workplaces. What year are we talking here, Alex? So that was 2008. Wow. Was the end of 2008. So even then there was a recognition yeah. of this importance at leadership levels. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it needed to go beyond a training program about how to be a better leader. Um, I don't, you know, not that I necessarily put all those pieces together at the time, but I spent uh, the first year doing that project, so 2008 through to 2009, uh, across the organisation. So I had about 40, I was working with about 40 senior sergeants uh, around the state um, in a variety of different roles and locations from metro to regional. Uh, and then... Um, essentially did the same role for another year uh, but dedicated in into specific work environments within the organisation. So for the first two years in VicPol, um, I was able to be out in the business, you know, working yeah. with managers, um, getting, a, I guess, a, a close-up look at um, basically how things worked, you know, where the wellbeing issues were, um, what our members faced every day in stations, what some of the struggles of managers were, um, how well managers were were equipped, you know, the, the types of things they, they struggled with in managing the health and well-being of their staff. How important was that uh, to help then provide that foundation for you, for you to then, for what you're doing later down the track, but how important was it to get out there in the grassroots and actually understand from their point of view what they're going through? It couldn't have gone better if I'd designed it, to be honest. It, you yeah. know, it wasn't something it, um, wasn't that, that was planned, it wasn't yeah. intentional, but in retrospect... I think it probably helped me um, in my role in a way that nothing else could have. Um, I think it would be very easy to have come in as a senior psychologist for the organisation and never really gotten a good picture of how things work out in the business for our sworn members every day. Um, you know, it would have been very easy to stay in an office and not get out amongst you know our members, not be exposed to the roles that they do. So. You know, it was probably the best foundation I could have asked for. And, and was did, did it did the challenges that presented themselves did it surprise you? As far as the state of how it was, or the the culture, or, or was it something that you thought, okay, this is something that's 
Look, no, not necessarily. You know, I'd spent a number of years um, particularly in already in government um, yeah. and corrections in, you know, working in with males, um, you know, because mostly male offenders, um, you know, working within um, government systems, working with um, heavily male clientele. Mm-hmm. So those aspects... Um, you know, weren't necessarily different. Um, and I think, you know, there are elements of culture regard, you know, the, the themes or the broad aspects that contribute to culture in terms of environment and those sorts of things um, are similar wherever you go. It's the it's the localised specificity of, of, of what you do that, that makes it different. So, so, no, I don't think any of it was really a surprise. I think there were um, probably more commonalities than differences um, you know, obviously, I've gone from one side of the law to the other, yeah. um, but uh, it felt um, it felt familiar. You know, there was some familiarity about it. I think. So, so you got a chance to go out there and 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 work with the middle managers um, yep. and see firsthand what was going on. What what did you then? You're in a coaching capacity, management with management and, and leaders. What what did you then have to do, or where did your career then take a turn? Um. Well, at the end of the that two years, it was sort of timing uh, and opportunity um, that allowed me to move across and take up the role as senior psychologist for the organisation. What year was that? That was I walked in the door at Wellbeing Services on the eleventh of January two thousand and eleven. Okay, so you three so years in that other role. And yeah, so two, into... two and a half. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I mean, when you arrived in that role, what what was it about? What were you supposed? What were you? What were the outcomes that you were hired to achieve? Um, it's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I felt that much clarity about it then. <laughs> um, I mean, the the remit of the um, wellbeing services area um, has essentially not changed. It's grown and progressed, but um, my role uh, really was walking as the um, as the most senior clinician for the organisation. So yeah. organisational SME but also that senior clinician in terms of overseeing um, the practice uh, of yep. how we do things. And how many, how, how big was the team then? Oh, gosh. So our wellbeing services has a number of subunits. So okay. um, we have a, um, and they've gone through the various name changes over the years, but we have a, uh, a clinical team, so a, team, a police psychology team. We have a uh, police welfare team, um, which is mainly made up of sworn officers who do a full-time welfare role. They're not clinicians, but they come in okay. and they're gazetted to a full-time role as a welfare officer. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a peer support coordination unit that has a psychologist. We have a chaplaincy unit. We have um, a small unit uh, that provides welfare specifically for internal witnesses. Um, and these days we have a case management unit, which we didn't have then. Yeah. So, you know, so we had an... Um, a number of staff of different professions and different uh, backgrounds across, you know, public servants, psychologists, social workers, sworn officers, uh, you know, chaplains, um, all working um, in different, you know, aspects and areas of well-being, but all contributing to the delivery of a total service um, of well-being support and psychological yep. care uh, to our employees. So, so back- were you in control of the overarching? 
outcome of that or like putting all the different divisions together? Uh, yes and no. So there were uh, a number of other managers um, involved. So we have a, a man- management structure um, of which I was um, a part, um, but I was the and still am the um, the chief clinician, yes. uh, the chief clinical person. Um, so you know, I'm part of a management team um, that involves all of us having to sort of pull all of those pieces together yeah. to get the best um, out of our teams uh, and for the organisation. So for around ten years now, you've been. In that role, yep. Uh, how, what are some of the key challenges that you faced? I think the biggest for us um, initially, or for the first few years, when I went in, was really the lack of visibility of the support services. Um, so, lack of visibility, and therefore, I think, a lack of sort of trust, engagement, uptake, um, and you know, we didn't have very much um, uh, visibility um, for the top layers of the organisation either. I think we were a little bit hidden. Um, yeah. But I think that also matches the community experience about where mental health was. You yeah. know, I, I think largely we have mirrored the journey uh, across community. Um, although interestingly, you know, most police forces have had dedicated support services for many, many decades, um, which is probably ahead of the community journey in some ways because of the recognition pretty early on of exposure you know, yeah. to trauma. So you know, our services in one form or another uh, date back to almost the late 60s wow. um, and then have you know, grown and developed. Um, then clinicians came on board. And, um, but you know, in early days, most police jurisdictions have had chaplains and, and peer support uh, officers and those sorts of models um, are where most of the support services started. And have you seen some real growth in those particular areas in the last 10 years? Yeah, look, for us, I think, you know, we were constantly um, working a way to... um, We were constantly working a way to provide, you know, all the support that that we needed to. Um, And that includes, um, you know, everything from uh, selection into the organisation through to individual counselling, through to crisis support, critical incident support, training mm. and education. Um, so a whole range of roles. And, um, you know, the teams throughout that decade and all the, the individuals that have come through those teams have always been highly committed to doing that job. But I think the difference for us um, was when uh, Victoria Police undertook our mental health review, um, which was released in April 2016. So for us, I think that was the watershed moment that brought everything to the fore a lot more. So we'd been doing this for years in the background, yeah. but that I think finally gave us the visibility, but also the the impetus and the permission resources. Um, yep to to actually then truly um, make an impact. Well, and so, what 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 was the reason for the for the review in the first place? Um, look, I'm not sure there was any one single reason. The, the okay. incoming chief commissioner uh, at that time, which was Graham Ashton, uh, had a passion for mental health. Okay. But I think, you know, there had been, um, like with any sort of area, you know, things had been uh, raised, you know, it was known that, that there were issues with, um, you know, rates of psychological ill health, um, you know, whether it was ill health retirement, psychological mm. injury... Um, you know, yeah. days lost to mental health, um, high levels of stigma, um, you know, some of the um, 
uh, some of the injurious experiences employees have had um, as they've battled through, um, you know, whether it's compensation systems or return to work or those sorts of things. So, so these were all, um, I think, known and probably snowballing somewhat in the narrative uh, across, you know, across policing um, and emergency services. Uh, and I think it was probably, um, you know, timing um, with uh, with a chief commissioner who, who was passionate about it um, and who decided to initiate it. Yeah. And so your role was the internal lead for the review? Yeah, so I was the internal lead. The, the, the review team um, consisted of a former uh, police officer, uh, an organisational and clinical psychologist, consultant, uh, and a, um, a public health executive. So a well-rounded group, I think, in terms of their expertise, who went out to the organisation um, really and asked for submissions um, about you know, a whole range of things to do with, with mental health. Um, and then I was the internal lead and contact point as we moved through that journey and that experience. Mm. Yeah, well. So, what was it? What was it like? I mean, what did what were the key outcomes? And, and so that was it. Was it ran for six months, uh, and they conducted, you know, a range of, um, you know, face to face interviews. Yep. There were hundreds of written submissions, um, and that resulted in a report that was released in April twenty sixteen mm-hmm. um, that had thirty nine recommendations uh, out of that review, uh, and all of those were accepted by the Chief Commissioner and Executive Command, which, you know, I think for us was really heartening that um, that this, as I said, gave us the, you know, the permission and the impetus but also the visibility to mental health in a way that hadn't occurred before. Yeah. But I think was probably timely, um, you know, just in our community's journey with mental health. Yeah. So all of a sudden become a priority. Yeah, absolutely. Within the force. and. Yeah. And so, I mean, it would have been really something you're really proud of to be able to get to the end of that and see all those recommendations taken up. Look, absolutely. You know, it was then a journey to um, to set up um, our mental health program office and uh, develop that. And, and that was our team um, that was really charged with acquitting all the recommendations. Uh, and, that, you know, and that, um, and that took time and effort, a lot of expertise and a lot of moving parts. And um, and I think, you know, from my point of view, that was done really really successfully mm. um, and with the support of the organisation to do that. So, you know, I think we were we were lucky that we had the um, – well, not lucky, but, you know, we had the, the visible support uh, behind us to, um, to work through, you know, what was a really um, wide-ranging – sort of program of works. I think the 39 recommendations resulted in about 25 different projects. So we're not talking about small one-off pieces of work. We're talking about, you know, sustained levels of work over a long period of time. Yeah, and it wouldn't have happened overnight. So it was something that was – and are those things still in effect today? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so post the the acquitting of all of those recommendations, um, essentially we've just been um, continuing to – progress them, build, mm-hmm. grow, um, you adapt. know, yeah, adapt um, and, um, and really just progress, progress what has come out then, you know, following those. Have you seen uh, statistically, uh, has there been evidence of proof that 
some of the initiatives are, are working? Yeah, look, I think the metrics about this are always a little difficult. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the the quantitative metrics are a little bit clunky and never truly represent the level of change. Um, so you might have more people coming forward with issues, which may seem like it's worse, but it could actually be better. Well, precisely. Look, and this is one of the things, you know, we had to talk about early on is that, you know, reducing stigma and reducing barriers to help seeking may actually result in more referrals for counselling or more work cover claims. Um, but we expect that there might be a peak in that. And that's not necessarily a product of worsening mental health. It's likely to be a product of... Um, the reduction of stigma mm -hmm. and reducing people's barriers to actually seeking help. Um, you know, so if you take one single metric, it probably doesn't give you um, a good picture. But, yeah. you know, we've tracked things like, um, you know, sort of the attitudes and, um, you know, people's perceptions of uh, how um, how likely they or comfortable they feel to approach managers, um, yeah. you know, if they've got an issue, um, you know, do they know where to seek help from, you know, do they feel, uh, you know, the impact of stigma. And we have seen those things shift from an attitudinal point of view. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're looking at uh, hard and fast um, rates and numbers, it's not always reflected, but certainly I think the... Um, acceptance, the normalising of the conversations, the normalising of mental health as a topic, um, the requests for service that we get, the requests for initiatives, um, I think are, are certainly proof that the, you know, it's no longer a hidden topic um, and, uh, you know, at a very broad level, um, there's much more um, of a, of a comfort, there's an increased comfort and willingness to engage with the topic and yep. um, reach out for assistance or advice. So post-review, uh, the recommendations all got approved. Mm -hmm. You then went into implementation. Yep. Uh, still very much alive today, a lot of those things that you, mm -hmm. that you guys, uh, the initiatives that you implemented. Tell us what, what what's then been the focus? Was that when you, you then started doing the, um, the health and wellbeing strategy? Was it yeah, after that? Yeah, so the first couple of... Um, first couple of things we did post-review uh, were really to ensure we had a mental health and wellbeing strategy. So that was really the first piece. For everybody. Yep. Uh, and that was, that was at an organisational level. So the first time we'd had an organisational level strategy uh, around mental health and wellbeing. So again, a key moment for us. Mm. Uh, and one, you know, and the importance of, of that um, was being able to have something that pulled us all in the same direction. You know, I think with an increased willingness um, to support mental health and do things to improve mental health, at least a strategy gave us a common pathway to corral all the efforts um, that are out there and all the goodwill and, and figure out how we actually collectively um, make sure that all those things are effective and, and pulling in the same direction. So the strategy was our first piece. Uh, so that was, you know, that was quite a big thing um, yeah. for us and to release that. And then the, the next piece of work, which was the first recommendation of the review, was to undertake a prevalence study. So essentially go out and actually conduct and get hard data about um, what are the mental health and wellbeing and related psychosocial issues that our employees are facing. And that occurred at around the same time as the Beyond Blue Answering the Call study was occurring. So I sat on the committee and the technical advisory group for... Um, for answering the call as well. Um, 
and you know it. So we we had employees who participated in that. Uh, we also ran our own prevalence study. Um, you know, and anyone who does research, you know, always frets about the low response rates. Um, we ended up with over um, over five thousand, I think almost six thousand of our employees responding. Wow! So you know, we were between the thirty and forty percent. That's incredible. Uh, which is great from a research point of view. Um, and I think was, you know, I think shows um, that our members were um, ready and willing mm. to, um, to participate in that kind of survey, but also to let us know what the issues were. Was it anon- anonymous? Yep. Okay. And so what, what came of that then? So that for the first time, I think, you know, we've heard the last couple of days in some of these presentations about the difficulty um, with research and data in, in, you know, a lot of emergency services um, agencies. And I think for the first time it it gave us, but also policing in Australia, some um, robust, accurate data to say this is what's going on. Prior to that, I think it's been a case of, well, we think we know, mm. but there's also some quite strong narratives that are not necessarily true. accurate or mm. true. Um so that data was able to, you know, give us the accurate picture. Yeah. Um, and really then, you know, for us to examine and explore and figure out, um, you know, well, what next? Where are the gaps? You know, um, and, and really gives us a pathway to figure out, well, what do we need to do and what do we need to address? Yeah. So as a result of that then, is it something that you're going to, the prevalence um, study, are you going to do that? Uh, every so often. Yeah, so the intention behind that was um, was that it is able to be and will be repeated over time yeah. so that we are then able to track, you know, the changes over the long term um, in the, the state of mental health and wellbeing across the organisation. Yeah, and have some sort of yardstickers to how we're progressing. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. How, how do you feel like, uh, I mean, with the, with the challenges that you've seen in implementing a health and wellbeing strategy... Is, is stigma up there with one of the hardest, uh, the, the biggest challenge that you have to self-stigma but also the stigma uh, about others? Um, or has it been buy-in? Has it been...? Yeah, look, I th- nominally I think it's the stigma and the barriers to help-seeking that are typically the two most problematic. Um, but I think the stigma... And those barriers do consist of things like lack of trust, um, fear of consequence. Um, you know, police members will, will often um, talk about, uh, you know, the consequences for them if they come forward in yeah. terms of mental health being dealt with punitively or, or losing their operational status or career losing career, but all of those things. Yeah. Um, so those have certainly been, you know, front and centre for, for many of our employees in terms of, um, yeah. uh, you know, not getting the help that they need um, and the challenge for us in trying to turn those things around, um, you know, has, is, is a long-term one, but I think we, we've, we've definitely, you know, started to make those gains. How many people are in VicPol? Is it about 20,000 or so? Uh, roughly ballpark around 22,000. 22. Yeah, I think and we've got around 16,000 very roughly of sworn okay. um, police officers and PSOs. Okay. And then the rest are made up of public servants and police custody officers. Okay. And geographically, they'd be dispersed throughout the whole state? Yep. 
Across the state from yeah. Warrnambool to Mildura to Mallacoota to Geelong. Is it challenging to try and, uh, you know, to implement wellbeing strategies across such a vast area? Yeah, look, access uh, is always difficult. You know, you've got the differences between metro, regional, rural um, and what that means, remote and what that means in terms of um, how they conduct their duties and therefore how you actually can access them for things like training or visits or or those sorts of things. Uh, Then you've also got to be conscious of the difference uh, in demand and the difference in, you know, the differences that present themselves between metropolitan and, you know, regional, rural, remote policing um, and be attuned to, you know, the differences in needs or um, the differences in the way they engage with the community and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, so it, yeah. access access is can be can be challenging. I think the other thing is, you know, that our workforce is is fairly mobile. You know, people do move around between yeah. workplaces. Um, having said that, probably reasonably lucky in Victoria compared to the size of some of the yes. other states. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, I mean, definitely a consideration. That's that's something you. you needs due thought and process when you're going around implementing exactly and it's not just the you know it's not just the obvious which is you know metro versus somewhere that's five hours away it's actually needing to think through well what other things are different that are driven by um not just location but the communities and and all of those other things and culturally exactly so you know you really have to think beyond the obvious as to what else is going on Tell us, as, uh, as COVID came about uh, early 2020, um, how, how has that impacted what you guys have been doing? Look, I think um, across the board, there was a bit of a pause um, as I think it, most of us tried to figure out what it meant in terms of uh, where we needed to um, adapt or move or pause or, or those sorts of things. So... Um, so like a lot of industries, I think initially, you know, we had to sort of pause um, and, and, and give the organisation a bit of breathing room to figure out how, what the operational demands and the operational environment was going to look like mm-hmm. um, whilst we sort of remained providing support uh, to them as they did that. Uh, and I think then over time, as, as we got a little bit of a clearer picture around, you know, sort of what we were dealing with and notwithstanding, you know, there's a... a baseline of uncertainty with that, we were able to pick up and move forward with some things, um, but it certainly meant we had to be uh, very flexible um, and yeah. very responsive in how we did anything. So, um, and, you know, and at times for for um, for many organisations, you know, outside of policing that, you know, sometimes means that um, you're you're providing the critical services while you're just trying to figure out what's going on uh, yeah. before you start to um, kind of re-engage and all that proactive up and, and other work that's ongoing. Has there been a noticeable uh, increase in demand for psychological services throughout the pandemic from the police point of view? Look, we haven't seen any overt or obvious changes in any of our data. Um, I think the... I think our employees have adapted incredibly well. Um, there's, you know, there, yeah, I, there hasn't been any discernible, um, okay. you know, sort of real overlay of, 
of difficulty. I, I think the possibly some of the the themes of what of what is occurring are different, um, and certainly you know there are um, you know people have quite normal anxieties and concerns ab- about them, um, but on the whole, uh, I think our you know like my clinical teams, but also the membership have um, been incredibly flexible, um, particularly with the restrictions that have been. Um, at play in Victoria. Did you have to adapt how you're delivering your services? Like most people? Look, absolutely. We had to move yeah. a lot of things online, yeah. um, you know, which isn't ideal, particularly when you're in that front-facing, you know, kind of quite personal yeah. setting. Um, so some things we had to try and move online, other things we couldn't. Um, but, uh, you know, it was sort of, well, if we've got to do it online, you know, we prefer to, to, to still be able to provide the support, that whatever support we can, um, uh, rather than be uh, cut off from people, so so you know that was uh, that was a um, a challenge I think for some of us as mental health professionals who um, you know that that sense of talking to someone face to face in a in a therapeutic environment can be difficult enough for some people, let alone adding a a screen. But having said that, you know again for some people um, talking on the phone or over the screen um, was actually less confronting for them yeah. than turning up to, you know, sit in a chair across from a clinician. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and again, that, you know, they're learnings for us around that um, access of service to people uh, is about being able to have multiple avenues for that and that, you know, particularly for those who are in remote regional areas, uh, you know, one of the papers was yesterday or this morning was talking about, you know, some of those gaps in services industry-wide, you know, in, in health across the board. Um, so, you know, the ability of health and mental health uh, industries to adapt with things like telehealth um, and being able to support clinicians to actually engage with clients that way um, has been critically important for us to be able to adapt in that way as well. Yeah. As you looked to the future, what, what do you see are going to be the key challenges that you may be coming up with that you might have to overcome? Look, I think the foundational work of, you know, stigma, help-seeking, that kind of never stops. Um, I think it's about trying to figure out what is the next step, you know, that we build above that. And it's not about stopping that first piece of work and rolling into a second because we're always going to have people coming into the organisation that still need to be... um, you know, given some of those baseline and foundational skills and knowledge. So I think some of the challenges, how we do, how do we continue that mm-hmm. um, whilst then building and progressing uh, the other things? I think one of the challenges all of us face is um, how we do true prevention. Um, you know, we have an industry where you can't uh, eliminate the risk. You've got to mitigate it. Um, and, so, you know, so when we're talking about exposure to trauma... Uh, if you mitigated that risk, you'd, we wouldn't have a police force, you know. Yeah. So, um, so when you can't remove the risk, you know how how well can we mitigate it um, and reduce its impacts? Um, but I think certainly in terms of prevention, you know, true prevention requires us to change systems, yeah. and these are often large, um, you know, multi-component systems across organisations um, that are, that are very difficult to change. It's not like you can just you know, pull the Lego pieces apart and rebuild them easily. Uh, but we also know that it, that 
sometimes the systems um, can injure people. So when we're talking about true prevention, uh, you know, how do we pull ourselves out of reactive space? How do we actually focus on some of the changes that need to occur but are probably the most difficult? Um, and I think, you know, the, the leadership pieces we've spoken about the last couple of days um, will increasingly continue. Uh, you yeah. know, I, th- I already think we're well on that way. And as I said to you, when I you know, walked in the doors of uh, Vic Pol 10 years ago, um, there was already uh, a recognition of that manager and leader piece. Uh, but I think that's becoming more and more prominent in terms of its direct, direct impacts on yeah. uh, mental health and wellbeing outcomes. Is is can is innovation or continually looking at technology or other tools that you can adopt or uh, to use within the force to assist any other tools to help people, whether it's in prevention, treatment. I mean, is that a key part as well? Yeah. Look, we I th- we we have to be, I think, continually looking at what's out there that yeah. gives us the reach, the access, the engagement. Um, and the results. Uh, yeah, and, and the results. Um, so, you know, part of um, part of the outcome of the mental health review, um, we developed a phone app with in conjunction with the Police Association of Victoria uh, and Phoenix Australia, um, the Equipped app, which is a um, kind of a resource and self-help monitoring and health and wellbeing monitoring and tracking tool. Um, it's been picked up by all the other police jurisdictions across Australia and has had some visibility overseas. So it's been built from the ground up, um, you know, by police for police. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that was our starting point of really going into more of a technological space yeah. um, in a more dedicated way, um, you know, given that we're all attached to our phones these days so people have, a, um, you know, an immediate accessible resource that they can use to find what they need, um, whether it's self-help exercises or whether it's contact numbers or whether it's figuring out how to track their sleep during night shift or mm-hmm. um, all those sorts of things. And I think, you know, that is continuing to emerge, that space. So figuring out, um, you know, particularly in a, in a pandemic world, how that can support us getting that access and reaching to our members to give them the skills, the support, you know, whatever it is that they need. Yeah. Is there value, have you found value in cross-pollinating to, to actually look across other states or territories uh, or countries to see what else they're doing? Is there value in that? We do it continually. Yeah. yeah so we've, we've got a pretty good network um, in terms of the – across the Australian jurisdictions, uh, all the senior clinicians are pretty regularly in contact. Um, so, and, you know, we work together on a few, um, you know, pieces of work here and there. So, you know, we consult with each other, we cross-check with each other, mm-hmm. you know, we send each other information. Um, we are continually looking at what's emerging from local and overseas research um, products to keep contemporary with where's the thinking going, you know, yeah. um, uh, but critically effectiveness, you know, what's showing results, what's showing impact, um, you know, is, is what we're doing aligned with that? Is there something new coming out that we need to turn our minds to and have a look at it? So I think that's a, a fairly natural thing we, we do all the time is that we're constantly looking to um, all of those other sources to either benchmark or to be on the lookout for, mm-hmm. um, you know, emerging evidence or, um, or any new, you know, any innovation. 
with regards to taking care of veterans post-service, is there, is there um, how much of that is what you're doing? Is it a separate entity? Is it departments? Is it... Look, I, that was particularly one area that had been under-recognised mm-hmm. prior to our mental health review. And, and post then, we'd had a um, retired peer support program for, for quite a while. Um, but it was bolstered then by the formation of um, a more formal uh, veteran support agency mm-hmm. um, that is heavily linked internally to the organisation. So we sort of integrate with them. Um, and again, it was the, the Chief Commissioner who led the mental health review that commenced the work around the veterans in recognition that, um, you know, many um, leave the service either not in the way they intended or, um, or because of reasons uh, beyond their control, um, but without necessarily the supports or the visibility uh, of the impact of their career on them post-service. Mm-hmm. So that's become an increasing focus Internally, uh, but also as we work with um, the, the, the the veteran um, the veteran support police veteran support yeah. association now, and, and how we how we grow um, the support in that area, but also how we work at the transition between you know from when people or from before people leave um, through to that leaving process and then after. Yeah, for people that are serving that have. Uh, suffering from PTSD or something uh, of similar nature, or some, a traumatic event, or or having a mental ill health challenge, mm. is there is is it Vic Pol that are doing where you don't actually have to seek help internally? You can go and seek help wherever, or do whatever you want to do. Whether it's go to yoga classes, do this. What do they get? Uh, do they try that out, or you could go get? Your, your professional help from wherever? Yeah, look, we're not precious about where people get help from as long okay. as they get the help they need. Yeah. Um, you know, we know, um, you know, culturally and also due to stigma and, and those other things we've spoken about, um, some, you know, a percentage will, will only ever want to come through internal services because, you know, we understand the business, we understand policing. Um, there will be a group who uh, will only want to go to external or, or through um, the union, for instance, through services provided by them. And then there'll be a group who want who will only ever seek help completely away from the organisation or the union. Um, so it's about being able to provide people with those pathways and the information uh, and a variety of options so that uh, at least one of them they feel they can take up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we... We've enjoyed probably, the, you know, in recent years um, a really strong, positive, collaborative relationship with our police union. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that I'm very thankful that we have a very good working relationship with them. So, um, you know, we say to our people, it doesn't bother us where you get the help. Um, yeah. But we will, we will, you know, we'll help you, provide you with the information, direct you, you yes. know, with those options of where to go because the main thing is, is that you get it. Yeah, so there is that flexibility to be able to then seek seek help from wherever. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Has that been has that been something that has only happened recently, or is that something that you've been? No, I remember employers have always had the choice um, about where they seek treatment. Okay. Um, it's just a case of equipping them, I think, with enough information so that they can make an informed choice. Yeah. About what might best suit them. 
Um, you know, we have obviously internal support services, our police union um, offers counselling through an employee assistant program. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you've got, you know, sort of private um, access through GPs, mental health care plans uh, and a whole range of other, you know, treatment and support agencies. So I think it's it's more about making sure people have the information about all the places they can go so that one of those so that one of the, at least one of them will resonate with them yeah. and that they will feel comfortable and safe enough to to take up one option. Yeah. As you look for the to the future, Alex, tell me are there any any solutions, anything that's jumping out at you as something that you would love to see um, developed to be improved on to be adopted uh, to uh, create better outcomes for the mental health and well-being of Vic Police? Gosh, good question. I don't think anyone's ever given me that kind of open <laughs> license before. Um, I don't think there's any one thing. Um, I think we're on the one. I think we're on the right track, and there are a lot of things that need to progress in concert with each other. Um, I think there's probably a couple of things that have resonated for me recently. Um, you know, while our focus for the last few years, rightly so, has been on things like mental health literacy and, <clears throat> pardon me, and reducing barriers to help seeking, reducing stigma, which are really the foundational parts. Um, you know, there are other, um, I guess, aspects of people's lives that they bring with them into the job or, or, or that affect them um, that we probably need to start turning our minds to. And one of those, for instance, is interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people's primary relationships with their partners and families um, are very impactful, um, both when they go well but when they don't go well. And they're often uh, a risk factor in a range of mental health um, yeah. symptoms and conditions. But not necessarily something that, that we've, or we are starting to, um, not necessarily something that we've addressed specifically okay yes so i so i think it, it's probably looking at at the more nuanced picture moving on from the foundation building blocks and saying okay what are some of the more targeted or um or nuanced pieces of of work and the other thing would be we've um for the last few years we developed a treatment program so a group therapy program mm -hmm. um a few years ago to try and see if there was an intervention that would work for police members who um, were experiencing subclinical PTSD. So experiencing symptoms of trauma or mental ill health, but still hanging on at work, still hanging on at home. Getting through. Getting through, but are probably at higher risk of going on to then develop mm -hmm. um, a more formal condition. And so we worked with, um, consulted with Phoenix Australia to develop um, a group therapy program aimed at those people specifically. So they didn't, didn't have a diagnosis of yeah. PTSD or anything else. To say, could we provide them with a treatment program that would improve their well-being and reduce the risks of developing PTSD or another condition long-term? So we've run I think, three pilots of that so far um, and are looking to continue to evaluate that to see if, you know, is there an intervention that we can use before people become mm. that unwell, that's actually targeted to this cohort. Was it successful? Were you still? It was. So group by group, of course, you're dealing with small numbers. Yeah. Um, okay. But the metrics uh, and the self reports have all been positive in the yep in the positive directions. 
um, and we're looking at ways to continue to evaluate that um, and see how that goes. The last question I have for you, Alex, is is what about the support uh, networks around your the employees, so the families? Mm. Um, is there much you're doing in that space, education, awareness? Again, I think like the veterans, that's always been a difficult space um, for a lot of emergency services, but you know the as for us our members are the gatekeepers to their families mm. so the access to families you know has um has always been a bit of a tricky thing yeah and certainly that was something that was mentioned in our mental health review so uh since then there have been a number of initiatives and some of them at, at local level in some of our policing areas in terms of um you know family days and um connecting them to you know to the local workplace and and those sorts of things, but probably the 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 biggest for us was developing um, an outward facing internet page um, that families could access, uh, because really a lot of the information and you know uh, psychoeducation information would have to come through the employee to their family. Um, so a couple of years ago, now we established uh, Blue Space Wellbeing, which is outward facing and. Um, you know, so anyone can access it um, and then have driven that very heavily for families to access so that that's where we can land all our information, our support services, okay. information that families need to know. Uh, so that's really the starting point of now trying to engage the families yeah. um, in this journey. And, there, you know, there are some good models from overseas about how that's done. So, again, we've looked at, um, we've looked at other jurisdictions here and overseas to learn about how can we navigate some of those barriers mm. to get families um, the information that they need when they're supporting a loved one who's in the job but might not know what's going on or what the resources are or how to get them help yeah oh, it's a, yeah, that's incredibly insightful and I think it's really interesting the work that you've undertaken but also still undertaking mm. in your role um, with the Vic poll so uh, congratulations on the role that you're doing and, and how you're going with that thank you uh, are there any uh, comments or any co anything you want to say in closing? Look, I think, um, you know, none of this gets done without a collective effort of a lot of people. Um, but I also think it, it didn't just come out of nowhere. You know, this providing support to our members, um, you know, from the wellbeing services team in its current and previous iterations um, has required really dedicated staff who, you know, have often done a job that's hidden and quite thankless. Um, so, uh, you know, so their wellbeing gets challenged uh, in this space. And I think, you know, over the years they've done an incredible job um, without sometimes the visibility or, or the recognition. Um, and I also think, you know, to a, a credit to our um, command for starting us on this journey um, and being really the first jurisdiction to, um, to open it up Yes. Um, bring it, uh, bring it to the fore, uh, and to make it, you know, publicly available. I mean, our mental health review is publicly available. Our mental health strategy is publicly available. Yep. So I think our, you know, the executive of the organisation. Um, Transparency. Yeah, it'd be commended yeah. um, for that and for, and for for taking for taking that move and and being, um, you know, confident enough and I think trusting enough that. Uh, we knew what we needed to do uh, and um, were willing to be transparent about it. Yeah. Well, uh, again, congratulations on the work that you're doing and uh, and hopefully moving forward you'll be able to 
uh, see some real tangible results of all the, the work that's being done. Um, Absolutely, I think I think now we're um, in a position where we're where we are seeing the the fruits of all that hard work yeah. start to pay off, and that's incredibly rewarding. Because uh, at the end of the day, um, you know we're here for our employees, our sworn and our public servants, um, and what we want to ensure is that um, they remain well. But when they struggle, we're able to pick them up before they fall. Yeah. Well, well said. And Dr. Alex West, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Sam. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.